John chapter 16, starting to read at verse 16. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. So with you. Now is the time for grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me for anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete." Though I am speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do indeed, that you do even need to have asked you questions. This makes us believe that you are from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming, in fact, has come when you will be scattered Each of you to your home, you will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How many of you can remember being dropped off at primary school for the first time? (laughs) I think all the people that can remember that are in Sunday school and crash right now, but how many of you can remember dropping one of your children off at primary school? Yeah, loads of you can remember. And as you stand at the gate and you're sending them off for the very first time, they don't know what's coming. And you've got a pretty good idea. You know some of the challenges they're going to face, the excitement, all of the new teachers and all the new lessons and all that kind of stuff. So in that window between you holding hands with your child before they step into the classroom for the first time, you want to leave something ringing in their ear. Something they're going to hold on to for the whole of the day. For the vast majority of you, it was probably, I love you. For some of you, it might have been, don't hit anybody. 
Our kids are different, but whatever your child may have needed to have known in that moment before they went into that school for the very first time, there was a window for you to say something that would have hung in their minds for the whole of that day. Now this, in the end of chapter 16, is the very last thing in John's Gospel that Jesus says to all the disciples. Get to John 17, and Jesus is about to leave the upper room with his disciples, cross the Kidron Valley, go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas will reappear. Not to say, Jesus, I was wrong, but to come with the soldiers and officials to arrest Jesus and take Jesus away. John 17 is that great prayer of Jesus on behalf of himself, his disciples, and all the believers who would follow. John 18, their cross, and is arrested. This is it. This, in chapter 16, is the very last section that we have of Jesus being able to speak to his disciples and leave that thought in their mind before all of that is about to happen. He's known, Jesus has known about this all the way since chapter 13. He knows that he's been preparing his disciples for what is about to come, but, but this is now it. This is the very last window. This is the, I'm at the gate about to let go of your hand window. And this is what he has to say. Do not fear. You are going to see me arrested and killed. You will abandon me in my moment of need. You are going to think for Good Friday and Easter Saturday that the world has won. Do not fear. Because Easter Sunday is coming. I've won. The Son of God will come back. Now, all of that is true, but for the disciples, they couldn't understand any of that looking forwards. They're still reeling with the news that somebody that they've come to love as much as Jesus is going to be taken away from them. And not only are they going to miss a dear friend, but in their minds, as best they can understand... The fact that Jesus is going to go away and die means he can't be the promised Messiah they've been waiting for. They haven't got to a point of understanding in their minds yet that the suffering servant of Isaiah is one and the same with the supernatural son of man in Daniel. And all they can think of is, Jesus, if you're going and you're going to die, you're not the one that we were hoping for. So they've got all of this weighing upon them, and we've just had Jesus telling them in chapter 16 and throughout the whole of the upper room, really, that he's going to send his spirit to guard them and to guide them. But at the very end of John 16, before his prayer and then his arrest, he comes back to the theme of him leaving. And this last word is to give them a, a word, a message of hope and encouragement in the face of all that is about to come. Here's the big idea. Because Jesus has overcome the world, we can know joy in the resurrection. We can know the privilege of prayer. And we can know courageous peace in his victory. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples in this passage. It's what we're going to work through this morning. In verses 16 to 20, Jesus explains that his resurrection turns grief into joy. And if you look at 16 and 20, they wrap up this section. Verse 16, Jesus says, In a little while you'll see me no more. 
And then after a little while, you will see me. Verse 22, he comes back to this same idea. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice. Now, sitting where we are, 2,000 years after all of this has happened, all of that makes perfect sense. We know what Jesus is describing. He's talking about a little while after, in the upper room, when he would be crucified and die. A little while later, three days later, he would be raised to life. And we're going to see how that changes their grief into joy. Verse 22, the kind of joy that no one will be able to take away from you. But for the disciples, all of that is in the future and they just don't get it. You've got this description, verse 17. What does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And part of their confusion is chronology. There's just so many events for these disciples to look forward to that they've lost sight of what these two little while periods could possibly mean. Plus, it's only a few minutes ago for them, for us it's back in verse 10, when Jesus said, I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. That's fresh in their mind. So that comes back in, verse 17. It comes back into their mind. What's this going on to the Father? It leaves in verse 18 saying, well, what does he mean? We don't understand what he's saying. Their big struggle was there was so much that Jesus was pointing towards in the future. They couldn't work out what was going to happen when. How many of you like stargazing? Does anybody... A few of you. God, you can be courageous. You don't have to be shy about stargazing. Okay, can anybody recognize this constellation? It might not be very easy to see in a bright room, but can anybody recognize that? Orion. That's Orion. Excellent. Now, if we look at Orion in the night sky, you can see the shape, and we're used to draw. I haven't got the shape to draw around it, I'm afraid, but you, you, you get used to seeing that shape. And to us... Well, especially when you're young and you start seeing stars for the very first time, you assume that they're all there on a flat plane. They're all the same distance away. But if you look at Bellatrix, which is there, thank you, AV team, Bellatrix is 243 light years away from planet Earth. That's a long way, isn't it? But if you think that's far away, the next one, Alnilam, That is more than 1,100 light years further away than Bellatrix. Now to us, it all just seems like they're just dots on the sky and they're all the same kind of distance. But that's only because we lack the perspective with the human eye. You can obviously tell with telescopes. We lack that depth of field to see where those stars are in space. Now, the same thing is going on here. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, Jesus is pointing them forward to this constellation of the biggest events in all of human history. In a little while, he's going to be arrested for no crime that anybody could possibly point out. Then he's going to be crucified. Then a little while later, he's going to be raised back to life from the dead. Then a little while after that, he's going to be ascended and taken into heaven. And shortly after that, he's going to send his spirit into the earth to be with his disciples, to build up the church, to enable other people to come to saving faith. And at some point thereafter, all of that's now happened for us. We too are waiting for Jesus to return. 
for that final day, that great hope as Oliver prayed, when the Son of Man will return and the end of all war and suffering and sin will come. There will be a great judgment of all people and all who trust in Jesus will be in a new and a perfect world forever. That, that day is yet to come, but for the disciples, all they're seeing is this constellation of stars thinking it's all going to happen at the same time. We don't know what Jesus is talking about. Well, that's what Jesus picks up in verse 19. Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you. Here's Jesus' explanation. In a little while, you will weep and mourn. This is Jesus saying, what am I talking about? You're going to weep and mourn. John, in his gospel, only uses the word mourn once here. He uses the word weep five times, and every time, it's because somebody has died. And in fact, if you're a Jew, if you've got any kind of connection with Jewish people, you will know that this idea of weeping and mourning, that is the chronology of grief for our Jewish friends. When they're bereaved, there is a season of weeping and wailing and of mourning and lamenting. This is describing a scene of death. Well, whose death would it be? This death comes, verse 20, bringing weeping and mourning for the disciples, but the world's going to rejoice. Why is the world going to rejoice? They'll rejoice because they'll think they've finally got rid of Jesus. Why would anybody rejoice in the death of somebody? Especially somebody like Jesus. Well, Jesus was a problem. Jesus taught with a power that left people feeling very uncomfortable. Jesus exercised control over life and events that people couldn't deny. Jesus explained to people with such clarity and power that there is a real God who is living and holy on the one hand, and on the other hand that we are not able to approach that God because we're not holy. The people were left confronted with the gulf between themselves and our holy God. And Jesus became more than a thorn in the flesh. Jesus became the person who exposed a problem in the human heart that I can't fix for myself. Jesus became the person that left people thinking, life is really brief. And I need to be ready for what is to come. All of that left a world that didn't want to think about Jesus because all of us naturally just want to live Apart from God, we want to live in this imagined independence as though somehow we're in control of everything and we can look after our lives and there's nothing more important that may follow. All of that is what the world wants to think and this Jesus was challenging all of that. So if they could get rid of Jesus, they could get rid of all of that heart examination, that thinking about the seriousness of sin, that awareness of a need to be made right before our holy God. They could get rid of all of that and just get on and enjoy life. That's why the world would rejoice. But after a little while in the grave, when the disciples obviously couldn't see him, he would be raised to life and turn their grief to joy. And this description of swapping grief to joy is so important that we see because it's the joy that is going to sustain the disciples. It's the joy that they're going to experience in his resurrection, not in the future life to come. We know that because if you look back in chapter 15 and verse 11, 
Jesus has already said that the purpose of his teaching is that you and your joy, sorry, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You jump to the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, and in verse 20, as Jesus reveals himself and his hands and his feet to the disciples, after he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This is a joy in verse 21 that is going to make sense of all of the grief and suffering. It's, it's the joy that Chetan and Sanghee have experienced this week. That, that every parent, and especially every mum, really knows. You go through all of that absolute agony. But in the moment of holding your child in your hands... Not only does the agony make sense, but the joy overwhelms the agony. All of a sudden, there is not just a purpose to the suffering, but there is a a sense of wonder that just overwhelms it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's not just going to be a swap. And it's really important that you get this, because our emotions change so much, don't they? One day, let alone one, one hour, you wake up feeling joyful. The next moment you you read something, you're discouraged by something, whatever it may be, and you're suddenly feeling really anxious. And you might think, well, how could I know that this joy, which will overcome grief, isn't just another temporary season of life? What's the hope that I'm not just going to become discouraged or anxious or fearful for good reasons at other points thereafter? Why is this joy different? Jesus tells us it is, verse 22. When he comes back to them, their joy will be so great that no one will take away your joy. Not fake smiley Christians. Not there is nothing hard in my life. Deep, deep joy that will sustain you through all that is hard in life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a joy that doesn't change with seasons. He's talking about a joy that nobody can take from you. He is talking about a joy that is so great there is no greater joy to displace it. Nothing else can come along and make you think, well, that was good for a season, but I'm really much more satisfied with this now. This is a joy like nothing else because this is a joy in a God-man who has dealt with death. So now I know I'm going to die. Either I'm going to die or Jesus is going to come back. That's the only two possibilities for my life. And I'm not super excited about dying. But I do know it's not the end. I do know that I don't have to fear Jesus coming back or my going to be with him because the judgment for my sin is paid for by Jesus on the cross. I do know that as I weep watching the news and I see all the suffering in our country as well as around the world, this isn't the end. And I know that for every Putin and everybody in the world now surely knows his name. How many countless tyrants Bullies, abusers, never, ever, 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 ever reach a headline. But break people's hearts, destroy their lives, leave them suffering for the rest of their lives. I know there is a day coming when justice will come for all of that. Because Jesus will turn grief into joy. And my confidence is not looking out in the world thinking, I'm glad they're going to get what's coming to them. It's knowing that I'm not going to get what should be coming to me. Because Jesus has died on the cross, and I know it was enough because he's come back to life. That's how this grief is so different 
Sorry, this joy is so different and will overwhelm the grief. So the, do you know this joy this morning? I don't mean are you happy. I do not mean are there no tears in your life because everything's just fine. I mean do you know a joy that you have no eternal fear, your soul is safe. Do you know as you look out in the wickedness of the world that you believe in the God who will put all things right? Do you know as you pray for people in your family, in your neighborhood, in your town, that God will save every single one of them who calls out to him? That's the hope that comes from knowing that Jesus' resurrection turns grief to joy. I pray it will be your joy too. Maybe it's not yet. And lots of life is really complicated. And living the Christian life is really hard. But becoming a Christian itself, from our experience, is not hard. You can talk to God right now in the quietness of your heart and say, God, I don't know this joy yet. Please, would you give it to me? Please, now, would you take my sin from me? Would your spirit turn my life away from all of that and help me to stop living a life of sin and to live a life of joy, knowing I'm forgiven, knowing that you will keep me, even though life will be hard into the future. That is the joy that you can know this morning. The joy that comes from the resurrection. second thing we need to see is that Jesus' resurrection transforms prayer for Christians. Now, to understand how massive this is, we have to try and step into the Jewish shoes of the disciples. You think about the psalm that we just read earlier on. You think about the centuries of Jews who have been living a relationship in in Israel with God and, and praying to the God and Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who've been praying to the God Almighty, who've been praying to Jehovah. You've got all of these amazing descriptions of God, and every one of those prayers is couched in their experience with how they can't just pray straight to God themselves. The only reason that a Jew could pray is because they knew there in the temple, animals were being sacrificed and offerings were being made so that the gulf that separated them as as sinful people could enable them to be able to pray to God. In heaven. That's all the disciples had ever known. It's all the Jews had ever known until Jesus. Then, verse 23 In that day, says Jesus, looking ahead to the resurrection and the completion of his work, he's, he's preparing them for life after he's accomplished the great mission of his life, which is to fulfill all that the Old Testament was preparing us for, so that that would help us understand what Jesus does at the cross. And he's saying, when I've completed that work and returned to the Father, which means metaphysically, he's not going to be personally present with them like he's been for the last three years. They can't just turn around to Jesus when he's ascended into heaven and, and ask him questions like they're done for those three years on earth. They can't do that. But Jesus says, I'm going to do something better. The first time ever, believers would pray to God in Jesus' name. Think about how massive that is in the sweep of human history. 
to do so would not be idolatry. To do so would not be to blaspheme God's name. To do so would not be to act in a way that was contradicting the monotheism of Judaism. Jesus here is not saying any of that because he is the Son of God. So he says to them, verse 24, Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Now see what Jesus is saying in the sweep of what's going on here. He is not making a value judgment about their prayer life. Jesus is not looking at how they've been praying for the last three years and thinking, well, you may have been saying some things, but you haven't really meant them. So maybe what you need to do, you need the magic formula. You need the code. Here's the code. You just tag on in Jesus' name at the end of your prayers, and boom, all your prayers are going to come true every single time. That's not what he's saying. And it's so important that we see that because what we mustn't do is grab hold of that verse and think it just applies literally in being excised from everything that's going on. Don't think, well, as a Christian, I've probably not been praying properly. I haven't really been praying in Jesus' name. I've not received answers to my prayer on all of the things that are on your prayer list during the week. What's the problem? It's not been anything, but I've not prayed in Jesus' name. So now if I do this, everything's suddenly going to happen. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is a statement that sits in this enormous event of redemptive history. Where for all of the years that the Jews have been praying to the Father, now Jesus says, pray in my name. Pray trusting in my finished work of salvation upon the cross. Pray knowing all the things that I have taught you that it is the will of the Father to do. Pray according to that plan, and God himself will answer your prayers. We don't pray, verse 26, we don't pray to Jesus and then leave him to bounce our prayers on to the Father. I'm going to get to the mediation and the intercession of Christ in a minute. Just see, that, see what Jesus is saying here first. It's not, verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Jesus isn't the bouncer stopping us getting into the room. He's not the one who's going to grab hold of it for us and say, hang on a minute. What do you think? No. That's not how it works. Here's Jesus saying, verse 26, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. Now, how do we hold together the mediation, the intercession of Christ. Here we go. We believe, Romans 8, verse 20, 34, that Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Amen? Maybe some. Hebrews 7, verse 25, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Amen? Now we're awake. And Jesus is praying for us even when we're struggling. And we don't know what the words to say are. And he says in Romans 8.25, his spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. This is not saying that Jesus isn't praying for us. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing you into the throne of grace. There's no barrier. My work is finished. All of the sacrifices and the offerings are done. You, now, brothers and sisters, 
sons and daughters of God, pray to the Father. Because his work, Jesus' work is sufficient. Verse 26, I'm sorry, 28. We come because by God's grace we have loved Jesus and have believed that he came from God. So now, verse 26, come back up through the text. Trusting Jesus' blood and the finished work of the cross, we can pray in his name directly to the Father. So, verse 23, very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Jesus' resurrection has transformed prayer for Christians. Now let me tell you what the devil is going to start telling you right about now. God's way too important to hear your prayers. God is way too far away for your prayers to get through. Do you remember what you did this morning? Do you really think the God of heaven is going to listen to a word you have to say today? The devil is going to try and convince you there is no way God will listen to your prayers. Tell him to go back to hell. What does Jesus tell you that the Father himself calls you to do? He says, come. Come to the throne room of grace. Come straight to the Father who loves you and who is now able to receive you because I've done everything necessary so that you can come as children. That's what Jesus has done. His resurrection has transformed prayer for Christians. Now, in all of their eagerness and in all of their excitement, the disciples thought they understood more than they really did at this point. <laughs> so verse 25, uh, they're, they're talking about, uh, sorry, Jesus is talking about this time coming when I will no longer use figurative language, but will tell you plainly about my father. And, and the disciples think, well, Lord, thank you that, that that moment's now. We get it. We understand everything you're saying. We're so thankful that we don't need to ask you any questions and that, and that everything's really clear to us. And Jesus lovingly reigns them in. <laughs> they're not there yet. And before they get there, they're going to go through a, tor- a torrid season of darkness. Verse 31 in our Bible is translated as a question. Do you now believe? We, we don't have as much punctuation in Greek as we do in English. No reason to think that's necessarily a question. In the way John writes his gospel, we've seen this again and again, haven't we? He often uses irony. And we could just as easily translate this as a statement instead of a question. So it could read, you do now believe, but implied your belief is soon going to be shaken. Verse 32, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you'll be scattered, each to your own home. You say you believe, you'll leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for my father is with me. There's a prophecy in Zechariah 13 where God said through the prophet, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In just a few hours, that is about to be literally fulfilled. They're going to leave the upper room, cross the Kidron Valley, get into the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas and the soldiers and the officials are going to come and arrest Jesus. And both Matthew and Mark's Gospels tell us explicitly that all the disciples fled. 
everyone deserted Jesus. Yes, Peter and John came back later on to follow Jesus from a distance in a way that they thought was safe. But in the moment of need, when Jesus was being arrested and all of the passion was about to unfold, all of the disciples left him. Jesus knew that was coming. But he also knew it wasn't the end of the story. And what's really amazing is he knows that he's going to restore them to faith. He knows he's going to fold them back into ministry. So he says, here's the final thing, verse 33, Jesus' resurrection guarantees victory and peace. Verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It would be very hard to overestimate how precious these words were to the disciples. You think about everything that's going to unfold. In just a minute, they're going to abandon Jesus and leave him to endure everything that's going to happen on his own. And then in a little while later, after Jesus has come back and ascended into heaven, they're going to start they're just hitting this onslaught of opposition. Being a Christian, for many of them, would result in death. All of this is about to come flying towards them. And here is Jesus saying, you may now have peace. Peace in knowing that your failure to stay with me does not stop me from holding on to you and even using you in ministry. Peace in knowing that for all of that opposition that is going to come, and it is going to come, and it will be overwhelming, it will not defeat you because there is a peace that passes all understanding that will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What is that peace? It is rooted in the fact that the Son of God has dealt with your sin forever. He has secured your eternal life forever. He has defeated death and the devil and paying the penalty for sin. You can now know a joy that death is not going to end. That will ensure that you will spend all of the new eternity in heaven with him. Jesus has overcome the world. What does that mean? It, what we saw last week, didn't it? That, that Jesus has shown the world that they are wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And we know from the rest of the Gospels that Jesus says, I have come and I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus has overcome the world. Now, what's very important for us to see is that for all that is different between our day and theirs. For all that we can see, the differences in the constellation of the stars and how all of that's been fulfilled and we're just waiting for Jesus' return. For all that's different, the, the existence is the same. We still live with these two same experiences that disciples lived with. Did you spot the ins? Spiritually speaking, we are in Christ in the same way they were. We are in the true vine. We have now and can anticipate the fulfillment eventually of all the spiritual blessings that come from being rooted in Christ. We are in him. But we are also, verse 33, in the world. And we will have trouble. Kids at school, you are going to be bullied if you stick your head up for Jesus. Some of you are going to face ceilings in your career, rightly or, well, rightly, for reasons that perhaps may not be explained to you, but there will be ceilings in your career because people know you're a Christian. 
Some of you, even today, live in homes where being a Christian brings real pressure. There are a thousand other ways in which being a Christian is hard. And in so many ways, the church in the West is being brought back to the same cultural experience that disciples faced immediately after Jesus' life. None of that is a a massive change. We've had this enormous season of blessing and peace in between, but actually all the Lord is doing is bringing us back to what the disciples experienced at the very beginning. And both to them and to us, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords says, take heart, have courage. Not because every Christian is a natural-born optimist. Not because... I'm convinced I have the power to change things in my own life. Not because I look around me at my own church family and think we can take on the world. Not because I'm looking around at leaders at any organization or church in the country and thinking it's brilliant because he or she is involved in the faith. Take heart because Jesus. Jesus has overcome the world. The battle will still come. The devil will not go quietly into the night. But victory is secure. And now we're called each day to put on our spiritual armor and to be faithful in what God has called us to. Wherever he has called you to be this week, to know that we can have courage because Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we feel as small as the disciples must have felt. Many of us look around at all of the things happening in our world and in our own lives. And we're hit by our own sin. We're hit by the limitations of our power. We feel that the world is winning, that culture wars are only coming against us. We are fearful for what our children will face and their children after them. It is so easy for us to be concerned, rightly concerned. So Father, we ask that the words your son spoke to his first followers would be pressed into our hearts by your spirit this morning. Father, thank you that we have the wonderful privilege of living after all that they had to wait to see unfold. We know that what Jesus said did happen. We know that he did die. We know he did rise to life and then on into glory. So, Father, as we read verse 33, please would you not have us thinking, well, I wonder if that may be true. Would we see it as the word of truth spoken by the Son of God who has already shown us how truthful every word that he spoke was. And would it give hope to every single one of us? Some will drive home this morning into families where being a Christian is hard. Some go to work and school tomorrow knowing that they might have to say something to a colleague, a schoolmate, a teacher, something that they know is going to be difficult. Father, please would you give us courage 
not because everything will always work out well, not because you promise to give us a life without trouble and difficulty, but because we trust in Jesus who has overcome the world. Father, what great love you have for us now. Would we please see the precious invitation that your son gives us to bring our prayers to you, trusting completely in Jesus and his name. But Father, for those in this building this morning who just found prayer really hard, please would we see how Jesus shows us that we can pray to you with all of the things that are weighing upon our hearts, all of the things that seem to us like barriers in our sin and our struggle to become more like Jesus that we just cannot possibly see we will ever be able to overcome. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Father, for those who are feeling that all of what has happened in the last week, year, however long, leaves them utterly unable to open their mouth to you in prayer, Father, would these words give us fresh hope? Help us to see that every single thing that we say in prayer is not rooted in any part of us being good enough, having earned it enough, having lived a day, a week, a year of enough goodness to be able to justify coming to you in prayer. Father, we come as people who were sinners by birth, who are still struggling in our sin, but because of Jesus are now your sons and daughters. And would you fill us with hope? that we would pray with great passion for a lost world, for men and women who are our friends and our family and our neighbors, for people who have been made in the image of God. May we pray for their safety and protection, for their eternal salvation. And may all of it, all of it, every single answered prayer, bring glory to the Son of God who saved us. We pray in his name. Amen.